The Rare Patient Advocacy Summit is the can't-miss event of the year for rare disease stakeholders. The summit is the largest gathering of rare disease patients, advocates, and thought leaders worldwide. Join Global Genes October 3rd and 4th at the Hotel Irvine in Irvine, California, to take advantage of this opportunity to connect and learn from more than 100 experts in rare disease. For more information or to register, go to www.globalgenes.org forward slash 2018 summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. When Hilary Savoie was pregnant, an ultrasound concerned her doctors that her child might be born with a genetic disease. When her daughter Esme was born, despite the health problems she faced, Savoie resisted having genetic testing performed. When her daughter was eventually tested, it did not provide clarity. Eventually, four suspect genes were identified through various tests. Savoie, founder of the Cute Syndrome Foundation, has chronicled her experiences with Esme in two short memoirs, Around and Into the Unknown and Whoosh. She discussed her experiences as the mother of a child with a genetic condition, the sometimes harrowing health emergencies she's faced, and how she has learned to live with uncertainty. Hillary, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about your daughter, Esme, the Cute Syndrome Foundation, and looking for answers with uncertainty. Perhaps you can begin with your pregnancy and when you first became aware that your child might have a genetic condition. What happened? So the first time that I became aware that Esme might be different <laughs> than I was expecting was at our 20-week ultrasound. Um, we did want to find out the sex of the baby, so we went in very, very excited to find out whether we were having a boy or a girl, and we were told pretty early on that we were having a little girl, and we were pretty caught up in the excitement of all of that, so it took a little while to notice that the technician who was doing the ultrasound got very, very quiet and very serious, um, and at that point, once we started to realize what was going on, she called in the doctor, and the doctor continued the exam, and then we were asked into a small room and told that our baby had several anomalies that would be consistent with her having a serious genetic disorder, such as trisomy 13 or 18. So that was really the first that anyone said the words genetic disorder to us. We did have an amniocentesis at that point. And we're told several days later that there were no large changes in her chromosome. Um, and uh, uh, at the time, the state-of-the-art testing from, you know, that first test, which was called, is called a fish test, the state-of-the-art testing to look a little deeper was called a microarray, and that was recommended, but we, we did refuse it at that point. Well, so we why, went up about the rest. Why did you initially refuse genetic testing? 
Um, well, we did we did do the the first round of genetic testing, which was that fish test to look for um, trisomy 13 or 18, or any it would have picked up any really large chromosomal changes, um, and we said yes to that. Honestly, I felt very pressured. I felt like that was what you were supposed to do, and so I said yes, and, and it was really a matter of minutes between being told this news about uh, my baby and going in to have the amniocentesis done. So once I had some time to think about it at home and once that first round of testing was, came back as normal, I I don't know. At that point, I just had in my mind that everything was going to be fine. And so I didn't want to do any further testing. It felt a bit like a wild goose chase. And so we went about the rest of the pregnancy assuming that everything was fine, really, until the day that Esme was born. Later on, you changed your mind about having additional genetic testing. What changed your mind? Um, well, what changed my mind was that Esme almost died. Um, so at three and a half months old, Esme had cardiac and respiratory arrest that resulted from her having... Uh, a poor suck swallow and aspirating, so breathing in um, the milk that we were feeding her. And that, you know, when she was three months old, before she asked, before she had the cardiac arrest, we knew that there was something different about her. I mean, she was very, very small, very um, low tone, very floppy. She never ate very well. She threw up copious quantities of, of milk. Um, we knew that there was something different about her. We didn't consider the testing at the time until she had her cardiac arrest. And I think that for me, I quite literally walked through the doors of the ER with her blue in my arms. Um, and I didn't know what to tell them. I didn't know what she had. I, I knew something was different, but I just I I longed in that moment for the ability to say, oh, she has X syndrome, and and hope that that would mean that they would know how to help her better than if I didn't know anything at all. So that was what changed our minds. From a, a medical point of view, what was happening in that first year and a half or so of, of her life? So from birth, she was very very low tone, um, and really, and failure to thrive. So there, she was, you know, not gaining weight. She was very tiny. Um, after the cardiac and respiratory arrest, she had a G-tube place, so we were able to get her gaining some weight. And I had hoped that that was really going to be the trick to get her back on, on track. Um, but a few months later, when she was around nine months old, she started having seizures. And at that point, um, we started progressing down the line of her having multiple seizures every week, on average about 15 per day, uh, once, a, once a week. So she'd have 15 in a 24-hour period or so, and they would come in cycles uh, once every week. And um, she was extremely developmentally delayed, so she was unable to hold up her head herself at a year old. She was... Um, unable to roll or crawl uh, in her first year. She began rolling at about 18 months old. She began crawling at about three years old. 
You describe her, though, as a, a, a remarkably happy kid during this time, though. What, what was she like as a, as a person? <laughs> well, as I always say, it's the only milestone Esme ever hit early uh, is smiling. And she uh, smiled very, very early and often. Um, I have always felt like Esme had this personality that just drew people in right from her first moments in life. She, even in the NICU, she had good eye contact and was very, she, I felt so connected to her as a, as a person. And, and when she started smiling, she would, she could just light up a room. She was just this tiny little peanut, but, um, she, she could make everybody around her smile. Um, and it was, it's one of the greatest joys and, and, and also, um, a terrible pain to, to realize that she has been through so much and she would, you know, she would come out of a, a spell of vomiting or out of a seizure, uh, close her eyes for a little while and then open them back up and be ready to, to smile at, at me again. She has more joy than any other person I have ever met. And I, I, I feel like I, I always say now, now that she's older, <laughs> making friends is her superpower. She manages to pull people in, um, and make connections even though she doesn't speak and, and she doesn't connect socially in, in ways that are typical for a child her, her age. What was this like from a parenting point of view? You have something medically wrong with your child, but you have no name for it. You don't know what any of it means. You've got this kid who's a, a happy little girl, but also going through these moments of that appear to be life-threatening. Um, you know, on one level, I, I didn't know any better. She's my only child, and um, it certainly I knew it wasn't what I pictured um, when I planned to have a baby, but it, it was my reality, and I think that... Um, I just, I just adored her and loved her and felt uh, very compelled to fight for her, even though I, I didn't always know what that would look like or could look like. And uh, I think in as time has gone on, I've, I've realized how uh, traumatic I think it was. I don't think I necessarily knew it in in the moments that these things were happening, um, but. It was uh, to have have your child go through uh, life threatening medical challenges and terrible pain and feel completely unable to help them. It's um, it's a very it's a it's a very very difficult <laughs> process. And certainly, I think it was isolating. Um, I didn't feel like I knew anybody who could really relate to what I was experiencing. And I felt often like, um, like I was completely alone in the world. Esme was growing up at a time of rapid advances in genomic testing. The first genetic diagnosis came when, when Esme was about 19 months old. What did it tell you and, and what didn't it tell you? So for Esme, um, the first, the first test was, 
for, uh, showed a small mutation in her PCDH19 gene. And at the time, it seemed to be a good explanation for her seizure activity and the type of seizures that she had. It was consistent with the sort of clustering seizures, and her during her seizures, she ter- would turn very blue, which is also very consistent with PCDH19. Uh, when we were given that genetic diagnosis, we were told that it was unlikely to explain the rest of her symptoms. So her low tone, her severe medical fragility. She also has anomalies in her heart and her kidneys. And those would not have been consistent with the genetic diagnosis of PCDH19. So right away we knew that that was unlikely to be the whole picture of Esme. Um, but it was the first thing that I could grab a hold of and feel like I could understand. Doctors later focused on a, a different mutation. What what happened then? <laughs> yeah, so we, uh, after the PCDH19 diagnosis, we assumed that that would explain her epilepsy and that what we would be looking for is some kind of, uh, some kind of second disorder that was neuromuscular in nature or or something along those lines. And so what we did was a full exome sequencing. And at that point, the, her mutation in SCN8A was found, which was a bit of a surprise because while SCN8A uh, does have a bunch of symptoms that are associated with, with much of what Esme deals with, so respiratory issues, low tone, uh, it is also a uh, genetic epilepsy. So that was a bit of a surprise, and it was also a surprise because essentially her first round of, of genetic testing that showed the PCDH19 was supposed to be a panel looking for genetic epilepsies. It's just that in the time between her genetic epilepsy panel and when we did the exome, the SCN8A mutation became understood to, to be um, a problematic mutation in, uh, that could cause uh, these symptoms. And so it wasn't in the panel initially, but by the time she had her full exome, it would have been in the panel. So it, as you say, this is a very rapid, uh, rapidly changing field, and so you can test one, run one test uh, and then run it again six months later, and it just picks up things that has only recently been discovered, and that was the case with Esme. You, you had become friends with Joseph Getz, the geneticist who isolated the PCDH19 gene. And when you discussed the latest diagnosis, he told you that the more data we generate, we seem to understand less and less. You say you found something calming in that statement. Can, can you explain what you mean? Um, I think that when we started looking for a genetic diagnosis for Esme, I I was looking for an answer, like a simple answer. This is what she has, and this is what we can do about it. And as time went on, I think I started to feel as though, first of all, I started to understand that, that those answers actually don't exist. They tell, you know, you can find a genetic diagnosis. It still doesn't really often help you know what the next steps are or what the next 10 years look like. And um, I felt very much 
like in that moment that he said that to me that I had I had felt like genetic diagnoses might might box Esme in as far as what her potential was. And there was something very calming about having a, you know, a world-class geneticist say, yeah, we actually don't know. <laughs> we really don't know. And I, it made me feel like Esme was going to chart her own path. And like there was nothing written in stone for her. And, um, and that she's a, she's a mystery and that that's, there's something really beautiful in that. And around that time that, that, um, Joseph and I were having those conversations, we also became aware of two more mutations <laughs> in her, um, in her genes, um, that were isolated by Joseph Getz and Michael Hammer, who's in, who is the man who discovered SCN8A in humans. And we found, so they found these two more mutations. So Esme has a total of four and which is certainly a challenge to come to terms with because we, we don't know what, what any of them does or, or doesn't do. And they're all of uncertain uh, you know, of uncertain causality in, in any of her symptoms. You came to call Esme's genetic condition Cute Syndrome and, and founded the Cute Syndrome Foundation. How did you become come upon that term and why did you use it? Well, I can't take credit for it. Um, it was my friend Dana who first used that term. And it was very, very early on uh, when Esme was still an infant before, I think it was, yeah, it was before her cardiac arrest, and we were having a conversation, and I confided in her that the doctors were concerned that as they might have some kind of a genetic syndrome, and I think she knew how scared I was and um, and how, what an intense thing that is to, to face. And so she she looked at me very squarely and then looked at Esme and looked back at me, and she's kind of a, a little bit of a dry personality, and she said, yeah, Esme has a syndrome. She has the cute syndrome. She's the cutest baby I've ever seen. And there was something about that that just, it stuck. And over the years, as we continued to not have any explanation for what exactly caused Esme's symptoms, and people would ask, and sometimes in situations that weren't, maybe the most appropriate. <laughs> and so I would often just say, oh, she's got the cute syndrome because she's so cute. And that gave me a pass when I, I didn't want to delve into the conversations. And when it came time, um, well, first I started blogging about her before the foundation, and I called the blog The Cute Syndrome. And then when it came time to start the foundation, that was just the obvious choice. It was already um, so deeply associated with Esme both uh, in her in our family as well as sort of publicly through the blog. What does the foundation do? And have you found that other people with the same mutations have the cluster of mutations that Esme has, or do they have just one or, or two? So um, to speak to the mutations first, she is the only known person to have all four of these mutations. And to, uh, to the best of my knowledge, there is no one else in the world who has any two of them. 
So she has PCDH19, SCN8A, TBL1XR1, and MAP3K7. And um, the population sizes are as little as I think MAP3K7 is somewhere around it's around 10 at this point um, in the world that are known. And as I said, no one else has any combination that I am aware of of those mutations. And for the foundation, I started the foundation when Esme's only diagnosis with P- was PCDH19. And we did focus exclusively on PCDH19 in the beginning with an understanding that we would expand as her diagnoses expanded. So when she was diagnosed with SCN8A, um, we began to sort of connect up with that community. And the children with SCN8A are often extremely fragile. And we have lost a number of children in the community, given that the population size is about, um, I think it's approximately 350 worldwide, and we're in touch with about 275 of those families. And we um, we have lost uh, about uh, 10 children since, I began working with that community. And so it's, the, the kids are in and out of the hospital a lot. They're, they're extremely fragile in many cases. And so at that point, I really felt that it was appropriate for the Cute Syndrome Foundation to begin to focus exclusively on SCN8A, uh, given the extreme nature of the, um, of the disorder. You say you believe Esme's mutations are not accidents, but instead a beautiful example of some of the possible forms of human variation. What do you mean by that? Um, I mean that I think that in our world, um, diversity in in all of its uh, forms, including in the kinds of ways that Esme is an example of diversity, has incredible value to our humanity. And I think that very often within these kinds of communities, there can be a focus on a cure. And I, and I do not by any means mean to diminish anyone's hopes for cures in any disorder that they, you know, may touch them personally. Um, but I think very early on for myself, I I started wondering if someone could hand me a cure for Esme tomorrow for something that's a genetic disorder what would what all would that change about her so we've talked about what a what a joyous person she is and and how extraordinary she is in the, in that way and how strong and determined she is um I hate the idea of her suffering ever, and I always want to alleviate any suffering that she has. I also think that she is an extraordinary human (laughs) because of everything that makes her who she is. And so if you change her fundamentally on a genetic level, for instance, I've always wondered what, what else would change with her with that. And I... I think that 
while we fund medical research with the Acute Syndrome Foundation, absolutely, and are looking for better treatment options for children with SCN8A at the moment and previously with PCDH19, and I will continue to do that work, and I feel very strongly about it. I also feel very strongly that... Um, that Esme is who she is. Uh, I hate to say for a reason that doesn't sound right, but she is who she is and it's beautiful and she's perfect the way she is. So as much as I want to alleviate her pain and make her life um, more typical in a lot of ways, I also can't stand the idea of changing anything about her. <laughs> Hilary Savoie, founder and co-executive director of Acute Syndrome Foundation and writer. You can meet Hilary and learn more about her work at this year's Global Genes Rare Patient Advocacy Summit. Hilary, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.